Hey, another great episode of Roundup is coming up next. If you like what you heard, please go online to redsearadio.org and donate, become a monthly sustaining member, and keep us on the air. Thank you and God bless. It is Wednesday, May 6, 2020. This is the Red Sea Roundup. Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Deacon Mike Beauvais. Today, I'll be speaking with Trent Horn from Catholic Answers Live. He serves as a staff apologist for Catholic Answers, where he specializes in teaching Catholics to graciously and persuasively engage those who disagree with them. Trent is an adjunct professor of apologetics at Holy Apostles College has written for the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly, and is the author of more than nine books. We'll talk a little about his article on the decisions to cancel public mass in light of them starting back up. But most of the interview will be about his new book, Can a Catholic Be a Socialist? And I'm going to give away the answer. It's no. no. <laughs> the show is pre-recorded, so we we'll, won't be able to take any phone calls. But first, as always, we want to welcome everyone listening to us on KEDC 88.5 FM Hearn Bryan College Station, and also welcome to our Central Texas listeners on KYAR 98.3 FM Lorena Waco, and a shout out to our listeners in Palestine on KINF 107.9 FM. I also want to say hello to Dennis. It's nice to be back in the studio. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. It's very nice to have you back in the studio and not over the phone airwaves. It's at least got a, a piece of the puzzle back uh, just a little bit at a time. We're slowly easing ourselves back into normal, and we're going to talk a little bit about that in a second. Yeah. But we also want to say hello to Thaddeus Romanski, our station manager. Thaddeus, how are you? Deacon Mike, good to talk to you. Dennis, good to talk to you. You as well, brother. Uh, look forward to our conversation here on the resumption of public masses and uh, different approaches and um, what what might be in store over the next few weeks. So take it away. Well, I wanted to start out with letting everybody know that uh, if in case you have not noticed yet, the bishop in the Diocese of Austin has announced that masses will resume publicly on May 5th. Now, that doesn't mean every parish will have a public mass on May 5th because right. we're going to talk a little bit about what all this is going to entail. But um, starting May 5th, every parish is going to be allowed to resume public masses with congregations under the strict guidelines of social distancing mm -hmm and only quarter capacity of the building you're in. So we were going to talk a little bit about some of the things that's going to entail and some of the decisions that every one of us is going to have to make because the bishop did say that it's going to be require prudent judgment of every parishioner mm -hmm. as to do I live with people that are more susceptible than others? Do I feel comfortable going into a group environment? Mm -hmm. Um, and so there is a dispensation still for people that are unable to come to Mass or feel uncomfortable coming to Mass. So everyone's going to have to make a prudent judgment as to whether or not they or their family are going to attend. But, of course, 
we're going to talk a little bit about if you do choose to attend, what some of the things are going to be that we're going to have to do. Yeah, I do want to point out that some of our listening audience, Palestine, for example, are in the Tyler Diocese, and their bishop, Bishop Strickland, has resumed public masses as of this previous weekend. And so, uh, you know, interested to find out in time how that all went and is going, but I think it will be very similar from one diocese to the next. Likewise, the Houston-Galveston Diocese, also this previous weekend, however— Two of our closest parishes are waiting till the 12th of May in that diocese. So um, it's it's left to the prodigal judgment of the, the pastor, as you mentioned. And I think uh, this is one of the things uh, we need to be aware of. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have stopped going to Mass in a certain environment, and we're going to resume coming to Mass in a totally different environment. Yeah. And so uh, we wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, preparing ourselves. Uh, For instance, uh, St. Anthony's, um, we can only seat about 50-some people in the main church, Mm. maintaining six feet of space between everyone. Now, not everyone has to maintain six feet of space because families can certainly sit together. but. No one can anticipate how many families are going to walk in the door, so you cannot section off the church yeah. with that knowledge. So at the moment, everything is spaced six feet apart, and we will have to you know, adjust uh, as we proceed. Same thing uh, uh, in our center. Uh, we're going to have mass in the center, which is going to have also chairs spaced where we can seat 100 people. Also, again, six feet apart, families are going to want to move the uh, chairs to sit together. We have no way of knowing what that's going to look like. So um, the main thing is that, you know, it's going to be important that everyone maintains the social distancing to the best of their ability and uh, because that's going to keep everybody safe. And so everyone has to keep that in mind when they come to church. Dennis and I were just talking, you yeah. know, the first time we saw each other today, first thought mm-hmm. was we were going to shake hands. Well, yeah. we don't, can't do that anymore. We have to stay six feet apart. Yeah, so. and I miss that. I miss that a lot. We have a, always a great firm handshake. It's a nice sign of respect. And, you know, we're going to miss that as we go back to the church. And and I don't presume uh, what you're going to be doing with your family, Thaddeus, because you all have some young kids, and I hear your lovely uh, offspring in the background. She, she sounds great, you know, but I don't presume to know if, you know, you and your wife are going to split masses and not bring your kids because some families might be doing that, some families. So we all have choices to make for our own and same for the pastors and same for the bishops. But the bishops, I think, in this this case have been really wise in, in opening it up and leaving it to the judgment of, of the pastors. And so I know one church in our area, one of our listening areas, is saying you come and you're wearing a mask and others are making it optional. And we have to respect that and know, you know, what we're comfortable with. And so I, I could imagine that if someone sees me and my family at, at mass, not wearing a mask, they may or may not get mad at me for that. And so what we're, I think, needing to tell people to do is to go in knowing that everyone's at a different place knowing that it's not going to feel warm and cozy and lovely and friendly because that's what a congregation is. They con- congregate 
and we're a church family. And so not being able to hug and get close to church family members, it's definitely going to feel way different. So I, I think there are a lot of people that say it's going to be pie in the sky. It's going to be like a slice of heaven. It's going to be a wonderful return. Yes, it will be wonderful to be able to receive the sacraments and receive the Eucharist once again. But the, the congregational aspects of it, I think, are going to feel way differently. Well, especially, uh, I can only speak for St. Anthony's, uh, but we're a traditional Italian parish. <laughs> How's it going? Everybody hugs. <laughs> yeah. So this is going to be a dramatic culture shock for most of us, Yeah. Uh, having to maintain the social distancing. Yeah. yeah. And, and, go ahead, Thaddeus. Oh, I, I think um, we're, we're still not totally decided on what we're going to do. Um, but you know, this, this may be a, a controversial opinion. Um, but it is something that has crossed my mind. Um, when I hear about the Bishop Joe saying that, uh, parishes must encourage people to wear masks. And then I hear about the diocese of Victoria was insisting that, uh, people wear masks during mass. And now you're saying that there's a, a parish in our listening area that's doing the same. Um, not not saying one way or the other that what those policies should be, but just what strikes me when I hear those kinds of things mm-hmm. is, you know, I think you're I think you're basically telling us that it's it's not really safe to come back to mass yet. Um, so why are we why are we having a resumption of of public masses? Um, I, I I just you know there's part of me that thinks if if you're going to have to resort to insisting on people wearing masks then then maybe it's not uh it's not the appropriate time to to take this step um that's ju- that's just one guy's opinion mm-hmm. uh, one one thought that rattles around in my head from time to time uh, a family like ours with with very little kids a uh, baby for example mm-hmm. uh, i don't know if i don't know if any of my children could keep their mask on for the entire mass <laughs> um even the 11 year old I don't know that I could. Um, so that's, that's kind of where we are. Um, yeah. Reactions to, to that. What do you all think about those thoughts? Well, I think it's definitely a legitimate perspective. And as a father, that is your job to make those sort of uh, prudential judgments for your family. Uh, then, yeah. of course, Robin will make a decision. But, you know. Uh, <laughs> Bingo. <laughs> But uh, I think uh, one thing to keep in mind By is, the way, everyone, Robin is his better half. Thaddeus is better yeah. half, if you're wondering the, the reasons behind our laughter. Uh, but the thing to consider is that most of these decisions are made out of an overabundance of caution. Yeah. If you're able to maintain right. the six-foot distancing, you maintain hand cleanliness and we're going to provide hand sanitizer and all this. And so uh, it's highly unlikely that someone's going to contract the yeah. virus maintaining those That's right. things. You know, and but it, uh, again, uh, you know, there is a small chance that it is possible. You know, somebody walks up next to you and coughs and you don't yeah. have your mask on. We have no no control over that. Control over that. But so. if we each, if we don't feel well, don't come to mass. It's kind of the. Oh yes. You know that's kind of the prudential judgment that's always been there. 
if you feel a cough or a sneeze coming on, cover it and cover it well, yes. you know, make sure that you can cover it well. So, you know, I, yeah, I, and one of the other, one of the other um, points in the Bishop's message was anyone who doesn't think that this is the appropriate time to return to mass is dispensed from, from yeah. having to do that. And so I, I think that's the, the best way to go is still provide that dispensation. And we were having this very discussion last week thinking that would be the best thing to do. And, you know, lo and behold, one day later, that was that was the uh, decree that was given by the Austin Diocese Bishop, as well as the Tyler Bishop, as well as the Houston Galveston Diocese Bishop. So um, I think leaving that, it— uh, That conversation you're talking about, Dennis, sorry to interrupt— no. Um, that we that you and Pam and I had as a Red Sea Extra, we sent that out uh, just yesterday on Tuesday. And so if you're an Immaculata Society member, you got uh, a link to that in your email. It's a special Immaculata Review email that we sent out to, to listen to that extra mm-hmm. conversation between Pam and Dennis and myself uh, yesterday. Just become a monthly donor and you can get access to that conversation. An automatic monthly donor. So that'd be on through yeah, credit card or... Monthly bill pay, something that's going to be reliable, even during a pandemic, I guess. Yes, that's right. That's right. <laughs> As all the churches are are now wishing they had a lot more automatic monthly donors because of the the pews, the the basket hasn't been passed. So, I, I think coming down to it in our last minute and a half of discussion here, it, it isn't going to feel the same, and it is going to be different. And um, but if you can't come, you know, continue your spiritual uh, communion. Listen to Mass on Red Sea or via social uh, uh, media distance or streaming some way or another. We're providing as much education and support as we can for your spirit here on Red Sea Catholic Radio, and we want you to continue that. But uh, we, I, I look with open, uh, you know, social distance fake hugs <laughs> to seeing many of you at, at our home parish uh, very soon in the, in the next few days. And again, the thing to remember is that literally we're all in this together, and uh, your parish is doing the best it can to bring everybody back to a sense of normalcy, but Red Sea Radio is doing the best that we can to have you feel connected to your faith, even when you're not physically capable of being there. So everyone trusts. Yeah. God will take care of us, but also make prudent judgments of mm-hmm. what, what's best for you and your family. And uh, we are going to have to take a short break, and we will see you on the other side. And we're going to be talking to Trent Horn about all kinds of stuff. Go for it, Ed. Trent Horn's got on the other side of the break. Red Sea Roundup. Talk to you soon. Welcome back to the Red Sea Roundup. As promised, we're going to be talking to Trent Horn, and all of you all have listened to him before on Catholic Answers Live. And we're going to talk a little bit about his article on the cancellation of public masses in light of the fact that they're starting back up. And then we're going to spend a little bit of time 
talking to him about his brand new book, Can a Catholic Be a Socialist? Trent, how are you doing? I'm, I'm doing well. I'm blessed and um, just praying for this uh, pandemic uh, to resolve soon, to, to protect lives and you know, try to restore some normalcy in the world. And I think this has been such a extreme balancing act for everyone involved. You know, anytime you make a decision, you're hoping that you're doing the right thing because there's so much unknown about all this. I think that's the problem a lot of people are facing, both civic leaders and uh, religious leaders when it comes to combating this pandemic. Uh, there's, there's two concerns that if one um, underreacts, uh, does not do enough, it could lead to people getting sick or dying, uh, or the other concern is that if one does too much, that could lead to unintended consequences. Uh, it could lead to negative, uh, even like negative economic effects, negative health effects that come from overreactions. And of course, the unwarranted suspension of worship, uh, public worship and liturgy, which is also something to be, to be concerned about. But as I said, it, it is hard to find um, a prudent middle in that regard. And this brings us uh, to the article you had written when uh, masses were being canceled, and you were talking about some of the considerations for making those decisions, because there's always the danger of either not taking it serious enough or taking it to the extreme. Mm-hmm. And that's right. And, and that's um, life is all about risk assessment. Uh, you know, everything we do when you get in a car and drive to mass before all this happened, you took a risk of driving in that vehicle to go to mass. You take a risk having people go into a a building together. Uh, So life is all about balancing risks. And most of the time we understand risks to be extremely minimal. And so uh, they're worth taking for the goods that we're, that we're seeking after. Uh, But now with this pandemic, the risks have gotten much more, more serious and imminent and so people have to uh, have to be cautious. And so what I wanted to point out in that article is that the decision to suspend the public celebration of mass, and this was back when it was still kind of a debated issue, uh, it, it was, is one that can be it can be validly done. There are people saying that we should never suspend celebrating mass. And to me, that that doesn't make sense. If you are in the midst of a a very serious epidemic with a, a dangerous disease that is extreme, easily transmittable to others. Uh, it would make sense just if all public gatherings are, are suspended to suspend religious gatherings as well. Uh, however, if you reach a point where uh, the disease uh, is no longer as serious a threat maybe as it once was, then people can talk about resuming public worship, but perhaps with social distancing guidelines and other guidelines uh, to help keep people as safe as reasonably possible. You can never be 100% safe in life, but we can strive for reasonable levels of of safety to allow us to live our lives. But in addition to that, uh, individuals have a responsibility to make prudent judgments in this also, uh, because all of us, you know, determine how effective social distancing is by our actions. That's true. So, uh, and this is something obviously people had to think about even before COVID-19 with just regular influenza seasons that if you are sick, if you have symptoms, you should not go to mass. Uh, you're, you're, you do not have to attend mass if you're sick, you're dispensed. 
Uh, and people have to use prudence uh, in any of that in any of that regard. As some people mistakenly think that, oh, well, I'm tough enough to go. Okay, maybe you are, but what about the person who is elderly or immunocompromised or is, is young? Uh, that person may not be tough enough to handle this, and you put them in danger. Uh, so, and it becomes more difficult with COVID-19 because a person can be transmittable yet asymptomatic. So we have to to balance that. And I also mentioned in the article that that some people were were promoting the celebration of public mass. Uh, with erroneous ideas, like the idea that because the Eucharist is truly Christ, you can't get sick from it. That's not true. The Eucharist retains its accidents. So just as if you have celiac disease, the accidents of wheat in a Eucharistic host uh, could make you ill, uh, there could be microbes or germs on the Eucharistic host that could make you ill as well. Now, there's germs all the time. We shouldn't let that deter us from normally attending Mass. But in, in this case, we, we ought not throw caution out the window. But on the other hand, we shouldn't just simply say, well, we're just never going to celebrate Mass until we don't have to worry about disease. Disease is something that will always be with us. So I think it's important for us to find a balance to be able to celebrate Mass according to the, the new social distancing guidelines. Do you think that perhaps people will actually think of this a little more seriously in during flu season, now that we've experienced COVID-19, that perhaps people at least in the near future might be much more thoughtful and not attending mass if they're uh, showing symptoms. I think so, because there's been a greater public education effort to uh, remain home and to have a responsibility to not infect others, something that we really haven't seen in a very long time in this country. So, uh, so I, I think people will be more uh, aware of that. The only thing I'm concerned about is when influenza season returns, which usually you see an uptick of that in October, uh, that people may be so uh, fatigued from fighting COVID-19 that they may be careless or sloppy or not, or not want to practice social distancing in the fall if they're fatigued from uh, an overzealous practicing of it uh, in the current time period. One other thing in your article that I wanted to talk about is we hear quarantine thrown around so often. That's really a term that's associated with the church, isn't it? Yes, quarantine comes from the Italian word quarantino, which means 40 days. Uh, it referred to uh, during when the plague in the 14th century in Italy was serious. Uh, ships were not allowed to dock at harbors unless they had been quarantined. They had, or Sorry, they had to remain in the harbor for 30 days, which was called the Trentino. And then that was later extended to 40 days of the quarantino. We don't know exactly why, but one reason may be that 40 is a, a biblical number. It is a, uh, it's part of the liturgical calendar. And so that's maybe one reason that 40 uh, was chosen instead of 30 for, for something like a month. So, yeah, that, that um, previous believers, uh, you know, members of the faithful have used both pious and practical methods to combat uh, uh, plague and natural disasters. And we should do the same. We should pray, but we ought to use practical measures uh, in a prudent way. It's that whole faith and reason aspect of the Catholic Church. That's right. St. John Paul II said faith and reason are like two wings that lift the human spirit to, to contemplation, and so they, they are not in competition or opposition to one another. Anything else you would like to add about resuming public masses from your perspective? 
Yeah, I, I just think that we ought to we have to practice humility. We have to practice obedience to our pastors. Pastors have to practice obedience to the bishops. But I think the laity can politely yet assertively make their needs known to their pastors. Uh, I think, for example, it, even if we can't receive communion, it may be helpful to restore some kind of public worship that is acceptable according to social distancing guidelines. And for uh, bishops to be in contact with civic leaders to say, look, we should treat religious worship as an essential service, like going to the grocery store, because man does not live by bread alone. Uh, and so to say, look, why can we have celebration of the liturgy according to the same social distancing guidelines? If uh, 10 people per 1,000 square feet or five people per 1,000 square feet are allowed in a grocery store or another retail store, or even just a grocery store, churches should be allowed to do that as well, and maybe have uh, parking lot masses or masses outside. Some parishes have started doing that. Uh, just to find creative ways to celebrate the Mass while understanding the limitations that are imposed upon us at this time. And I think that you hit on something that, you know, it is important that the faithful make their needs known so that, you know, these decisions can incorporate that aspect in the decision-making process. Yes, that's right. That sometimes um, uh, bishops or priests may not may not be aware of uh, the particular needs of the faithful. So I think that we should not be in a spirit of, of saying that we are demanding something of priests and bishops. Uh, they are the hierarchy who leads us, but it is quite appropriate for for us to make our needs known to them. Very good. Now, we're going to change tracks a little bit, and I'd like to spend a little bit of time talking about your book, Can a Catholic Be a Socialist? And mm -hmm. um, the answer is right on the cover. Why do I need to read the book? It says no. Well, because there are, well, you need the reasons, the reasons to be able to ah. offer that people have have forgotten over time, uh, you know, that, that they are, you know, people have been lost to history or the great teachings of people like Pope Leo XIII and Pope Pius XI, that, uh, uh, we, um, that we have, that we've been blessed with, with a church to understand and to be able to explain that to others, because especially in this time period we live in more and more people, including faithful Catholics are, uh, being seduced by the promises of socialism. Uh, so th this is, um, this is just important for us to be able to explain this to them and help them when they have been led astray by false teaching by people who don't understand Catholic social teaching and advocate for social and economic policies that are actually detrimental to the common good. And this is why I got so excited when I saw the title of your book, because, you know, when I hear the conversations going on right now, the first thought in my head is, people do not understand what socialism truly is because the things they're saying are not necessarily socialism. But uh, would, you give right. us, would you give us a definition of socialism and then by extension communism? Yeah, so socialism deals with the ownership of the means of production. Uh, so uh, land, factories, private property, uh, businesses, uh, technology for that purpose. Uh, socialism holds the community ought to own these things and the fruit of that ought to be distributed evenly to the community uh, so that there, you shouldn't have just uh, private organizations or private actors doing this. It should be owned communally. But when practice 
that's usually the state is operating this. And so the state centrally plans the economy and then um, uh, controls the production of goods and services and the allocation of income and wealth. Uh, now that's socialism, and it's usually a waypoint uh, until one reaches communism, which is a time period where everything is communally owned and there are no class distinctions, no rich, no poor, no employer, no employee, no government, no elected officials, no lay people. Everyone is just communal and equal in that regard. And so that is the understanding of what socialism is. Another way to look at socialism is to say that socialism uh, deals with uh, fixing prices. So in a free market, prices are set by producers and consumers in freely chosen transactions, whereas uh, for socialists, uh, prices such as either the price for goods or the price of a wage for labor is set by the state, uh, depending on what they think people ought to pay or what they deserve. And as we've seen throughout history, this centralized kind of planning, uh, it just never works. It violates well-known laws of economics. And that's what we cover in our book. And we, we take pains to say that this is different than social welfare, which is just when the state provides benefits to the public, like food stamps, public parks, uh, public hospitals. Uh, the state providing public benefits is not socialism, but the state running the economy and replacing private businesses, that's where you tread into socialism and then communism. And that, I think, is the distinction, uh, because you see in our current culture so many people say that they're in favor of socialism, when what they actually mean is they're in favor of the government providing assistance to various levels, rather than honestly believing that the country should become socialist, but that's what they're saying. Right. It's uh, it's something that you always have to watch uh, terms as they're thrown around in these debates. And that's what people always try to do, because the church has condemned socialism uh, for over 150 years uh, in no uncertain terms. Pope Pius XI said no uh, good Catholic can be a true socialist. So you could be a bad Catholic and be a socialist, or you could be a good Catholic who's not really a socialist. Here's the socialist in name only. Uh, so that is uh, something that always has to be considered in these kinds of um, discussions. In his encyclical Verum Novarum, uh, Pope Leo XIII, his defense of the Church's position against socialism rested so much on two things, private property and the right of every individual to own private property and human nature. Would you talk a little bit about that? Right. So when Pope Leo XIII uh, condemned socialism, probably the most famous condemnation of socialism in the Church's history in his encyclical Rerum Novarum, uh, he said that the main tenet of socialism that has to be condemned is the community of goods, this idea that uh, goods ought to be owned communally and that people don't really have a right to private property. They don't have a right to acquire wealth and dispose of it as they please. Uh, rather, everything should be owned communally and that Families uh, are not obligated to support themselves. The state is the one who supports. So instead of families supporting and making the state possible, the state supports and makes families possible. And that's what Pope Leo argued against. And he said that that socialism deprives people of the right to private property, uh, that we, we have the right through the fruit of our labors to own the fruit of that labor and to own means to uh, support ourselves and support families and to grow businesses to be able to benefit others. Uh, so this right comes from a moral duty. So, for example, if you had 
the duty of filling up my car with gas. It would follow you also had the right to drive my car since you can't fill it up if you aren't able to drive it. Much the same way if families, especially fathers, have a duty to support their children, to support their spouses, and for people to support themselves, it follows they have a right to engage in that kind of support uh, and then um, uh, keep the fruits of that to dispose as they please. Now, the right to private property is not universal. I mean, if you're in the midst of a natural disaster, like a hurricane, and someone's dying and you need to break into a store to get food or medicine, it's accessible in a case of urgent necessity. Uh, but it doesn't follow from that, that in those rare cases that there, you can get property whenever you want because you think it makes the world better. Uh, rather, people have the right to, to make a living and to work together to make uh, the common good better for everyone. Uh, and socialism ultimately fails in that task. The second point that he made is that human nature does not yes. work with socialism. Yeah. Socialism relies on human beings acting completely altruistic. Uh, in the Soviet Union, the propaganda said that you, uh, your duty is to the state uh, and to everyone else equally. So if you have a family, they don't come first. Your duty is to the state first. Children, uh, the, what they idealized was the idea of communal education for our children. So children are raised by society more than by parents. Uh, Marx and others wanted to abolish the family. They thought the family was what kept capitalism uh, in business. So, so the idea here is that it, it wants people to act against their nature, their familial natures, and also just their human nature, saying that we're going to act completely altruistically. And no matter how hard you work, you always get the same amount of food or, or rations and we're just going to support everyone. Well, that just doesn't work. A good example of that in the United States were the pilgrims, that the pilgrims, when they um, farmed in the New World, they engaged in communal farming. Uh, and when they did that, uh, they evenly distributed what was farmed to everyone. So you got the same amount of food no matter how hard you worked. So the problem was a lot of people stopped working hard because they could never improve their lot in life. They always got the same amount of food. And so because of that, uh, food production fell and they experienced famine and the, co the colony was almost lost until Governor Bradford came along and said, no, each family gets their own plot of land. And because everybody had their own plot of land, uh, they were able to produce far more food than they, they normally would have because people care more about that which they own. Uh, and that's just the truth of, of, of human nature. And so when people do that, they benefit one another oftentimes in indirect ways. But also one of the things that Catholicism teaches us from Scripture is that each one of us is given distinct talents, and uh, it is up to us to utilize those talents not only for our own betterment, for, but for that for society. And government ultimately isn't going to be the best judge of who should be doing what, but uh, in a socialistic society, that's it. You're assigned a job, whether you're qualified to do that or not. Well, it ends up being because you lose the incentive factor. Uh, certain jobs uh, that, are, 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 that require a lot of training, for example, and require a lot of sacrifice and are, and are, are difficult, um, they... Uh, they have their incentives for people to undergo the sacrifices necessary to perform many of those jobs. And in some cases, that involves a, a higher wage to be able to incentivize people, especially people who have high labor skill sets, 
who could choose many more uh, relaxing jobs or not as difficult jobs to incentivize that subset of people to engage in, in very difficult or dangerous kinds of work, uh, they, they get a higher wage. I mean, to incentivize, I mean, look, nobody's very, far fewer people are going to uh, go through all the years of medical school to become a brain surgeon if they make the same amount of money that you would make uh, taking orders at a coffee shop. You know, most, some people will have the love of the practice and just want mm -hmm. to do that. Uh, it almost is like this kind of a hobby, if you will, but I don't want my brain surgeon that to be his hobby. I want that to be his profession. He dedicates his life to, um, uh, so, uh, but the most people won't be incentivized to take on these roles unless they're, they're compensated accordingly. And so the wages that people receive, it's similar to the price of goods and services that law of supply and demand, when something is in high demand and low supply, you pay more for it. Uh, it's why. That's why, uh, you know, gold is, is worth more than uh, ground beef. You know, there's a, there's a lot more ground beef than gold. Or, you know, you, any, you can pick any other kind of examples mm -hmm. you, you want out there. Uh, and the same for labor, laborers with particular skill sets. So uh, you're right that in socialist societies, when the government tries to plan things, they end up just sometimes like assigning jobs or mandating how much work factories do. And it leads to overproduction of useless goods and the underproduction of needed goods, which can result in shortages of food, medicine, and, and other necessary staples. And in the book, you use the example of Venezuela. And uh, it's always amazing to me when I was growing up, we always had the examples of Cuba and the Soviet Union and all these to see that when the government takes over private industry, what happens to the economy? But we have a current example in Venezuela and see how non-functioning that economy became in a short period of time. Why do people not use that as an example? Uh, well, some people do. I think a lot of people who have common sense uh, will, will say, look at Venezuela, what socialism has done, and people can see it, especially since we have evidence that with China and the Soviet Union and Cuba, people used to say, oh, well, that's not true socialism. But with Venezuela, many people said, oh, this is true socialism in like 2009. But then when the system collapsed in 2013 and 2014, we could say, okay, you said this is true socialism, so look what happens. Some of them will say, well, the reason it collapsed is because their economy is oil is their largest export and the oil markets crashed during that time. That's true, but that doesn't explain how other countries like Saudi Arabia, who rely on large oil exports as well, uh, did not fall into the same economic panic. Uh, the, the same thing, another objection is, well, it's not socialism that's the problem. It's the fact that Chavez and Maduro uh, mismanaged the economy and made uh, several blunders in their managing of it. And so that's what happened. But that, that's, that's it. Socialism is mismanagement by definition. No central planning authority can understand all the variables that are necessary to have an economy work together. Just, much the same way that there's no single bird that directs a flock of birds, the flock works together to accomplish its motion. And there's no single person that, or planning committee that can direct an economy to provide abundant goods and services without requiring a lot of people to, to work in various areas. So the, the, the system, to say it was mismanaged is just to say that it was socialist. Now, one of the things that you often hear is that, well, the early church was a socialism construct. What do you say to that? Uh, well, I would say that the early church practiced, uh, it practiced 
charity, but it did not practice communism. And so there's a difference is that uh, the Acts of the Apostles describes the early Christians living in community. It describes what they did, not what all Christians ought to do. These were people that were shunned, thrown out of the synagogues, persecuted by the Romans. Uh, so many of them lived communally and shared property with one another so that they could uh, function. But this is not a mandate for all Christians now or even then. Because uh, when you go to St. Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he says, uh, I, he encouraged them to give to a collection to help the church in Judea. Uh, but he said, I'm not going to force you to do it because God, quote, God loves a cheerful giver. Uh, he didn't have to compel them. And the church didn't uh, unilaterally own everyone's property or wealth uh, because people could still donate. People could choose to sell property they owned and give it uh, to distribute to others. So they practiced voluntary charity. Uh, but they were not mandating some kind of socialism for all of you to follow. And then once uh, the early church eventually found a foothold in the Roman Empire, when persecution ended, uh, they, they ceased to, to live that particular lifestyle. And the church fathers at that time uh, talked about how a person could be rich as long as they spent their money wisely to help the poor. One of the examples that people often will bring up is what happened to Ananias and Sapphira in Scripture when they did not contribute everything to the uh, communal uh, group of the early church. Why is that a bad example? It's a bad example because St. Peter makes it clear uh, why uh, they were being judged in this regard. When you read in Acts, in Acts 5-4, Peter said that the property they had was theirs before they sold it, and they retained the right to use it even after selling it. He said that the point with the judgment that came upon them was not their refusal to be part of some kind of mandated socialist system, but it's because they lied to the apostles. They engaged in deception, and by lying to the apostles, they lied to God himself because the apostles were the vicars of, of God. That they, you know, the same passage says they lied to Peter, was lying to the Holy Spirit. Uh, that he's a, a vicar and a representative in that response. So that's what earned them that judgment, even though Peter says they still retain their use to the property even even after they they would have sold it to help with uh, to help with the collection. But the point is in that example, they're 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 chided for that behavior, but nowhere onward do we see any kind of universal teaching of the church uh, mandating this kind of communal living. It's not, that, that is not found in the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15, uh, and it's, it's nothing the Church ever mandated uh, during that time or after. One other example that you often hear uh, given by people that support a move towards socialism in our country is the claim that it works so well in the Nordic countries, Sweden and Finland and Denmark and Right. Uh, the problem here is that the Nordic countries do not practice socialism. They have relatively free economies. In 2015, Denmark uh, said, we're not socialist. We're a market-based economy. We're capitalist. Uh, they invest in social welfare programs. And so uh, there's a debate among Catholics as to how prudent that is or how much a country ought to invest in those kind of programs. But these are just not socialist countries. And there are trade-offs 
with these social welfare programs. So emphases on public education, for example, often come with bans on homeschooling or religious education. Uh, healthcare waits can be a very long time to wait for healthcare and more people seek out private insurance as a result. Uh, so there are these trade-offs with the Nordic countries, they're, they're not socialist. And so that, that, that ultimately undercuts this argument for socialism. Uh, they have free economies. The most socialist countries on earth right now are North Korea and Cuba. That would be, sorry, North Korea, Cuba, and Venezuela. That would be a more accurate example to hold up. And none of those three countries have a functioning economy the way we would describe it. No, uh, especially um, Cuba is sometimes held up as an example of a functioning healthcare system. But there's evidence that uh, the Cuban government doctors their healthcare records to hide uh, the true numbers of infant mortality, for example, uh, that they put on uh, show hospitals for tourists and visitors from the West, uh, but the real hospitals are actually very dilapidated. Uh, in Cuba, people can't access basic goods like groceries. They have to really rely on a black market to acquire them. Uh, and one that where if you are caught in it, there are people who've gone to jail for 15 or 20 years for selling eggs uh, or meat. Uh, so it's uh, it's yes, yeah, it's not an economy like one we are we are used to having. Now, one of the other things that seems to be consistent in socialism and communism is the trend toward atheism and a uh, anti-church stance by the government. Why do you right. explain? Uh, how do you explain that? Well, I think what happens here that when the state is trying to say you can have heaven on earth, uh, you've got to get rid of the entity that says, no, heaven is specifically the thing you can't have on earth. Uh, and especially to get rid of the or the, the organization. Uh, well, I mean, to start off that, that it's atheistic, they've always seen the church as trying to enforce inequalities that they rail against. Uh, Pope Leo XIII said that socialists try to reduce society down to one dead level, that they want everyone to be equal, even though human beings, while we are equal in dignity, we're not equal in our talents, abilities, or fortunes. Uh, and that inequality we have makes us dependent on one another. And that's actually something to celebrate, but socialists hate it. So if that's something the church celebrates, the differences and inequalities we have um, amongst one another, then uh, you could see how there would be opposition, especially then with the church's outspoken um, uh, ways to try to, you know, combat socialism has led to, to violent uh, results from persecution. Now, on the opposite end of this discussion, uh, what is the church's relationship with capitalism? Because on the flip side, you see that uh, the people arguing that the church, you know, supports almost unfettered capitalism, which is also not the case, is it? No, it, it's, certainly, it's certainly not the case. And uh, Pope St. John Paul II had an excellent, uh, in, in Sintissimus Anus, uh, he, had a one, he had a wonderful uh, paragraph talking about, uh, is capitalism the means that, that third world countries ought to undergo? Uh, if, if they want to uh, be able to thrive. And he was writing this, of course, after the, after the fall of the Soviet Union. And, ba and basically what he said was, if by capitalism you mean a system where workers are exploited and there's no laws to protect them, uh, then no, 
But if it's something restrained in a strong juridical framework where people can freely choose to buy and sell from one another while respecting the dignity of the human person, then yes, capitalism is, is a tool that has been discovered that helps us understand how to create wealth. Uh, so it's a tool, uh, much like a kitchen knife is a tool. A kitchen knife can cut meat or stab someone in the back. So it's good use depends on using it well. And it's the same with, with capitalism. And so we talk in our book about how the church teaches that uh, there are, workers ought to receive just wages, not ones that are too low to be an affront to their dignity, but not ones that are too high that would cause a business to uh, falter or possibly go out of business. Uh, that we, we talk about how it is within man's dignity to acquire property and trade it and to grow wealth and dispose of it as he pleases, but he ought to do that with a sense of moral responsibility towards those who are less fortunate, and that it's not the job of the state to enforce every single moral responsibility that we have, because that can create greater evils than the evils uh, we're trying to get rid of. When we talk to our families and loved ones and people that we know who tell us that we should embrace the socialistic trend in government uh, right now because it is Catholic. How do we talk, uh, talk to them? Well, what I would say is, well, why do you think it's Catholic? If you think that um, the Catholic view is that we ought to help the poor, no, we all agree on that point. What's problem is that you have a very un-Catholic assumption if you think that socialism is the best way to help the poor. Uh, that it's a short, it's, it's short-sighted thinking, uh, that while it's laudable, you want to help the poor, if you choose a means that decimates the economy and increases poverty, then you're actually not helping the poor. And so I think to show them, that's why in our book, Can a Catholic Be a Socialist?, we cover the historical example showing every time socialism is implemented, there are shortages, there are food lines, there's poverty, and in the worst case scenarios, there are famines that have led to millions of deaths. There are authoritarian regimes that have to practice brutal tactics in order to keep uh, their societies uh, functioning according to the central planning dictate. Uh, so I think that here it's also helpful, we talk about this in the book, that the ability to start businesses and freely exchange goods and services through capitalism, uh, that has led to some of the greatest increases in human flourishing in the history of the world. That prior to uh, the Industrial Revolution, prior to that point, 99% uh, of people lived in extreme poverty. Today, only 10% of people live in extreme poverty. Uh, and we can credit that to uh, the ability to own goods and services, produce them, and keep the fruits of that, those rewards and reinvest them in the good work that you're doing, uh, which is something that socialism doesn't reward and doesn't foster. I noticed uh, when I was reading the book, one of the things that uh, became plain to me is when you look at examples of socialism in practice, there's very little self-correction that's possible because it's, uh, as you mentioned, it tends to lower everything to the lowest common denominator. Whereas in capitalism, we sure certainly have seen growing pains uh, labor unions, things like this to, you know, provide benefits for workers and things like this. But capitalism tends to lean towards self-correction, whereas socialism doesn't seem to do that. 
Well, because capitalism is built on free voluntary association between people. Uh, and so when you allow that, now some people, of course, even with that freedom, don't have the means to fully actualize it. But the more you can give people freedom to do that, uh, the more you're able to uh, confront the darker sides of human nature to uh, counterbalance that and promote human flourishing. Uh, so it grows in that respect. Socialism only improves when it stops being socialism. So if you take China, for example, people have praised China for lifting billions of people out of poverty over the last 40 years. Uh, that's true only because in the 1980s, China abandoned the strict communism that was uh, endorsed by Chairman Mao uh, during the glorious and cultural revolution. Uh, so China only saw econo uh, large economic growth in the 80s when it began to embrace limited free market principles, even though it's still uh, heavily under uh, com you know, communist ideology. Uh, so, so, I mean, you're right that the only way it ever improves is when it stops being what it is. The trend in our country to believing that we should explore socialism is so much tied to the idea of providing to fill needs, but some of those needs are not necessarily uh, needs that we consider vital to uh, human flourishing, uh, free college education and things like this. When did we, or where did we get the idea that uh, the country should provide benefits above and beyond what's required to uh, maintain a good livelihood? Right. And this is something uh, that has uh, changed over the course of the past 150 years. I mean, you've seen the development of social welfare and benefit programs. And as I said, Catholics can reasonably, the thing is Catholics can reasonably disagree about uh, their size and scope and what is helpful and what isn't. I think what happens is that even though there are cases where I believe it would be quite justified to have social welfare programs to prevent especially extreme poverty, the problem is with government programs is that they, they, they never get smaller. They always just tend to grow and get larger over time. And so you see things that starting with uh, the, a good effort of having uh, government-run schools so that someone could learn to read and write, uh, even if they couldn't do so at home, that is a good thing. Uh, the problem is when it expands to trying to mandate everyone go to government-run schools, which the state tried to do back in the 1920s, or uh, saying that, okay, not just that we'll, we'll provide uh, these basic skills, we'll provide even higher education and, and all college degrees uh, and once again, the problem here is people might think, well, why not? If it helps people, why don't we do it? Well, because of the law of unintended consequences. So, for example, one of the downsides of free college is that if you make college free, uh, the degrees become worthless. If, every, if everyone has a degree because you didn't really, it doesn't really require any effort to get one, uh, then employers won't care uh, that, you, that you have a degree. Uh, I actually do a whole show honestly, just on the problems we have with, with college degrees. But what I will say there is it's a great example of the law of unintended consequences. If you wanted the knowledge, you can get the knowledge from Yale or Princeton online through their free open course software. Uh, but if the degree is what matters and you make it free and everybody has one, 
then it's worthless and it doesn't really help you in the job market. So what you think will be helpful for people uh, actually ends up uh, hindering them in the long run. And that's, that's a common thing with socialism is that it, it causes human misery through, through good intentions. We're nearing the end of the interview, and I want to thank you for being on. Like I said, I found the book fascinating, uh, mainly from a perspective because this is now a consistent topic of conversation in our country. And so it's very right. helpful to take a look at what this conversation actually should look like rather than what's being thrown around there. Uh, sure, of course. And, and that's why I definitely recommend your listeners pick up a copy. Uh, I also want to mention that this book, I co-authored it with uh, uh, an economist, a Catholic economist who teaches at the Catholic University of America, Catherine Pakalik. She was great to work with, so we brought a lot to bear. And the book is Can a Catholic Be a Socialist? You can get that uh, at online book retailers uh, almost everywhere. Again, thank you very much for being on. Uh, I hope we have the opportunity to talk again in the future. And uh, again, I was talking to Trent Horn who all of you all have heard on Catholic Answers Live. And uh, we were talking about his book, Can a Catholic Be a Socialist? And in our current climate, I recommend that everyone pick it up and find out why the answer is no. I want to thank everybody for tuning in today. Next week, Gene Wilhelm is going to be our host for the Red Sea Roundup. I want everybody to remember to tune in from that. Until then, when considering the many ways in which you might share your time, talents, and treasure with the people of God, always round up. <laughs>